The stag whined and groaned in terror, its hooves and antlers tangled in the net. The other animals had gone silent, and the air was thick with the scent of death. With the help of two attendants, 38-year-old Pope Leo X slid his hefty body off his riding steed. He raised a monocle to his eye, fixing his sight on the target. His boots slipped in the blood of the carcasses that surrounded him as he strode across the hunting ground and approached the snared deer. The stag snorted, bucking and twisting to get free, but it was hopeless. One wide, frightened eye looked up at the most powerful man in the Roman Catholic Church. Leo's hand shot out to the side, pale fingers spreading wide. One of his attendants raised the handle of a spear to his palm. The Pope grasped the wood, spun it around deftly, and drove the blade into the stag's chest. The animal whimpered and fell limp. Applause erupted behind Leo, standing proudly over his kill. He turned to look at the scores of men in his hunting party, bringing their hands together in congratulation. As the last wisps of life fled the beast, Leo smiled broadly at his audience, at peace with all the world. But if Pope Leo X thought nothing in his papal kingdom could be improved upon, not everyone in Christendom agreed. Soon, the naysayers would descend on their extravagant pope, intent on ending his hunts and feasts. But they wanted more than that, too. They were done with all these corrupt popes. And they were ready to take down the papacy itself, even if that meant re-envisioning Christianity and the very universe itself. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we go deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we're exploring the lives of three tyrannical popes who presided over the Catholic Church in the lead-up to the Protestant Reformation. Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're diving into the reign of Pope Leo X. Last week, we heard how this talented member of the wealthy Medici family rose through the ranks of the Catholic Church, becoming a cardinal at the age of 13 and pope before the age of 40. Today, we'll explore how Leo's shrewdness took a back seat to his appetites, and how this led to perhaps the most significant event in the history of modern Christianity, the Protestant Reformation. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By the beginning of 1514, Pope Leo X, born Giovanni de' Medici, was at the top of the world. People in Rome and his home city of Florence celebrated his ascendance to the highest office in the Catholic Church. His family was restored to their historical place as the rulers of Florence, and he enjoyed access to the revenue of his family's banking empire. His predecessor, Pope Julius II, also left him a massive treasury. The cardinals who had elected Leo to the papacy were convinced the mild-mannered young Medici would be a less controversial leader than Pope Julius II. This optimism seemed justified at the time. The young Cardinal de' Medici had risen through the ranks of the Church by heeding his dying father's advice to be frugal, keep few friends, and rise early in the morning. But all their hopes would soon be dashed. Now that Leo had risen to the Church's highest office, his father's advice went out the window and decadence reigned. From day one, Leo's spending was prodigious. He kept a staff of 700 servants at the papal palace, four times that of his predecessor. There was someone on hand to attend to every need and desire he or any of his visitors might have. Some of the staff were devoted to caring for the Pope's prized pet, Hanno, a young Indian elephant that the King of Portugal gave to Leo during a trip in 1514. The elephant would bend its front legs and trumpet whenever the Pope approached, causing Leo to clap his plump hands in joy. Leo's daily routine was built around amusement. After a brief perusal of the day's business, he would often invite other cardinals to play cards. When he lost, he laughed in good humor, and when he won, he threw his winnings to spectators. Between his family's riches, the massive treasury left by his predecessor, and his sizable income as pope, Leo thought his spending power was limitless, and he used it to fund a non-stop orgy of banquets, feasts, and daily festivities. There were also literal orgies at the palace. Cardinals and courtiers danced, and more than that, with courtesans barely attempting to disguise their identities behind flimsy masks. All this delighted Leo, though he rarely joined in. The Pope was more of a voyeur than a participant, preferring to watch as others indulged in carnal pleasures. There were, however, two things that interested Leo more than the entertainment of his large and growing circle of friends. The first was art in all its forms. For generations, the Medicis had commissioned and cultivated the best painters, sculptors, writers, and musicians in Italy. Leo continued that tradition, notably financing work by Michelangelo, who couldn't stand the portly pontiff, and Raphael, who tolerated him far better. In recognition of Raphael's talent and his patience, 
Leo put the artist in charge of the effort to restore St. Peter's Basilica, a gargantuan project left by Pope Julius II. But one didn't have to be Michelangelo or Raphael to gain a commission. Hundreds of creative minds found patronage in Rome in the first years of Leo's reign, transforming the Vatican into a sort of artist's colony. A lover of Greek and Latin, Leo was also well-versed in the literary arts. Once, after a young poet recited some lackluster work, he fired back with extemporaneous verses that followed the same rhyme scheme. By the poet's admission, the Pope's improvisation was superior to his own writing, impeccably phrased and full of witty references. The young man came away chastened and a bit embarrassed. Others who failed to impress Leo, however, were subjected to more than one-upsmanship. One unfortunate monk performed a comedy that failed to elicit a laugh from the Pope. Leo, determined to be entertained one way or another, had the man beaten, laughing uproariously as he watched the punishment. But all these amusements, both elevated and base, paled in comparison to the enjoyment the Pope got from his favorite pastime, the hunt. An obsession since boyhood, Leo's continued passion for hunting caused some controversy. High church officials had long been forbidden from hunting, not because it was considered immoral, but simply because it was seen as unbecoming. The appointed master of ceremonies, Paris de Grassy, wondered how the people would be able to kiss the Pope's feet if he were wearing riding boots. But that didn't stop Leo. The term hunt isn't exactly an accurate label for the Pope's escapades, however. He didn't track or pursue animals, and there was never any doubt as to whether his party would nab its game. Day after day, for weeks or months at a time, Leo and a couple of hundred or thousand of his closest friends would ride out on horseback. They would go to pre-selected clearings where animal wranglers had corralled all manner of targets from the surrounding woods. In little time, the clearing was a fly-covered cesspool of blood and viscera and the sight and smell of the carnage served as a potent aperitif for the banquets to follow. Leo's feasts were always extravagant, especially those following a hunt. The table saw course after course of exotic delicacies. Peacock's tongue was sometimes on the menu, along with large pies from which live nightingales or young boys would emerge when dessert was served. The hunting after parties also became buffets, where social climbers could sample the rewards of appealing to the Pope's vanity. Leo was so jovial and jolly after a good hunt that he could hardly resist bestowing cash gifts and titles on any who asked. One Florentine, seeing how Leo handed out favors so liberally, remarked, it would be easier for a stone to fly than for this Pope to keep together 1,000 ducats. Throughout all the merriment, though, the young Pope never lost sight of his larger goal, to expand his family's power and influence on the European stage. Hunting trips and banquets were Leo's greatest joys, but they were also an arena for him to ply his political trade. In 1514, the Italian noblewoman Isabella d'Este traveled to Rome. 
Word had reached her that Leo was looking to install his younger brother, Giuliano, as the leader of a state in which her family had an interest. Isabella intended to question the Pope about his plans for the territory. But instead, she found herself swept up in Leo's dizzying revelries. Known as the First Lady of the Renaissance, Isabella was no stranger to luxury and excess. But what she found at the papal court left her reeling. Leo dazzled her with ornate dinners along with music, dancing, and the hunt. He commanded that a bawdy Italian comedy which had been written the year before be staged in her honor. Isabella spent over two months at Leo's court, broken up only by a brief trip to Naples to recuperate from the inundation of food, wine, and spectacle. She was awed by it all, and very distracted. That, it turned out, was the point. When she returned to her home in Mantua in March, Isabella found that she'd never gotten any real information about the Pope's plans for her family's territories, much less convinced him not to interfere. Meanwhile, Leo had arranged for Giuliano to travel to France, where he met with the newly crowned King Francis I. Who laid claim to important regions of Italy, including those tied up with Isabella's family. While Isabella was drinking, dining, and watching tawdry theater, Giuliano was gaining the hand of a French duke's daughter. For all their wealth and accomplishments, this was the Medici's first foothold in the European aristocracy. Whether it was intended or not, the whole rollicking jubilee prevented Isabella from meddling in the Medici family's affairs. The noblewoman went home empty-handed. In spite of his outsized image as Pope, Leo was still Giovanni de' Medici at heart, and for a Medici, family outweighed all else. Giuliano's trip to France and the comical pretense used to deflect attention from it was all part of a larger plan. Being Pope wasn't enough. Leo wanted the Medici family to include dukes and duchesses, kings and queens, and he was more than ready to exploit his power as Pope to make that happen. Coming up, Pope Leo X flexes his political muscles and squeezes his treasury dry. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify.
Now, back to the story. The first years of Pope Leo X's reign were marked by opulence, luxury, and unchecked spending. His artistic commissions and architectural projects enriched the culture of Rome. But most of his expenses were about his personal pleasure and the pleasure of those closest to him. The College of Cardinals could only watch ruefully as this young pope made a mockery of his office. But the childish grin Leo wore while indulging in his various amusements concealed his fox-like Machiavellian designs to amass greater power. Leo was shameless about promoting his own interests, and he kept a far greater allegiance to the Medici family than to the Catholic Church. Take his cousin Giulio. Early in his reign, Leo named Giulio Archbishop of Florence. Then he wanted to name him a cardinal, but there was a problem. Since Giulio had been born out of wedlock, church rules made him ineligible for a cardinalship. So Leo created a commission to investigate the matter. They came back with the ingenious and absurd justification that Giulio's parents had been secretly married at the time of his conception. The cardinalship was his. Leo wasn't content with just gaining Medici's church roles, however. He wanted to secure his family hereditary power, power that didn't rely on transient papal politics. Which is why he was so intent on infiltrating the nobility. Noble titles were always valuable, after all. The respect they garnered didn't depend on financial success, appointments, or elections. Which is why it was so important that Leo's brother, Giuliano, got a noble marriage out of his 1515 trip to France. That was a big step in the right direction. But the Pope's efforts on the world stage were not always so successful, especially when they couldn't rely on stupefying potential interference with an onslaught of entertainment. And a strategic error would soon threaten his brother's hard-won advancement in France. For several years, the kingdoms of France and Spain had been squabbling with each other and with local leaders over control of some regions of Italy. Collectively, these skirmishes were known as the Italian Wars. In 1515, the French and the Swiss, the latter of whom were backed by the Spanish, were locked in a bitter contest over the region of Milan. That September, Leo sided with the Swiss at the Battle of Marignano, which would determine control of the province. It was a direct betrayal of King Francis I, who had given Giuliano a warm reception in France and was coming to see the Pope as an ally. Leo's lack of loyalty may have seemed Machiavellian in spirit, but in this case, it flew in the face of Machiavelli's advice. The political strategist had written to the Pope weeks earlier, arguing that the Medici fortunes must lie in a partnership with the French. The Pope should have listened to him. Francis I's armies routed their opponents, claiming Milan for the French. After the battle, Leo flipped sides once again. In December of 1515, the Pope met with King Francis to negotiate a settlement that would put France once again at peace with the Vatican. Leo's diplomatic skills were on full display in the meetings. 
He dispelled the rumor that the Vatican had been supporting France's enemies and assured the young king of their mutual interests. Initially unimpressed by the portly, sweating man who came to the table, Francis found himself swayed by Leo's intelligence and charm. He agreed to a partnership with the Vatican. The terms, however, were brutal. Francis claimed the right to name senior church appointments to the Catholic Church within France, a bruising concession. Still, the agreement wasn't entirely one-sided. The French king agreed to appoint Leo's brother, Giuliano, as Duke of Namur. The younger Medici's ascension to the ranks of the European nobility was now affirmed. With a well-planned marriage or two, members of the Medici family might one day sit atop the thrones of the nations of Europe. There was also a financial dimension to the agreement. The Vatican would be able to keep the substantial income generated by its churches in France, with Francis only skimming a small portion off the top. Leo had feared that the brash young king would simply seize all the church's revenue in his country, and the loss of these funds would have posed quite a problem for the Pope. Even while he was engaging in the occasional battle or bit of political wrangling, Leo had kept up his extravagant lifestyle unabated. And the nonstop party came at an enormous cost. Leo's expenses quickly outpaced his income as Pope. By the end of 1516, Pope Leo X had bled his finances dry. Rather than reining in his expenditures, however, Leo responded by getting creative and shameless in his efforts to generate more revenue. Under Leo's reign, around 2,000 church offices were available to the highest bidder. In addition to the income from these sales, Leo also resorted to taking out large loans. There was so little indication of his intent to repay that the interest rates rose as high as 40%. But the loans kept coming, the lenders buoyed by the promise of a long, prosperous future for the Pope, who was still young and relatively healthy. Peddling titles and borrowing vast sums may have provided enough cash for Leo to pay for his meals, parties, salaries, and commissions. Unfortunately, even these methods wouldn't come close to meeting the cost of constructing St. Peter's Basilica. The artist Raphael estimated that the project would cost upwards of a million ducats. The Pope needed new streams of revenue. In 1517, he found it. It would become his greatest and most controversial windfall. The sale of indulgences. An indulgence was a document that could be purchased from the church to pardon an individual for past or future sins. It remitted all or part of the punishment awaiting that individual. The greater the sin, the greater the cost of the indulgence. The rationale was that the money the purchaser spent on the indulgence benefited the church and therefore helped counterbalance the purchaser's sins. Indulgences could also be purchased on behalf of deceased family members, sparing them some of the torment they were already suffering on the other side. In 1517, Pope Leo X began issuing indulgences to fund construction at St. Peter's Basilica. But while the flow of money kept Leo's activities afloat for the time being, the future was still uncertain for him and his family. 
His brother Giuliano died unexpectedly in March 1516, not long after he was dubbed Duke of Namur. He left behind no legitimate successor. And now Francesco della Rovere seemed intent on recovering the Duchy of Urbino for his family. On January 23, 1517, Francesco della Rovere invaded the city of Urbino, exploiting the municipality's weakness following an eight-year war in the region. Incensed by the rival family's power play, Leo sent his nephew Lorenzo and thousands of troops to fight della Rovere off. Lorenzo was injured in the battle and had to retreat to Florence to recover. Back in Rome, the growing chaos of Leo's reign was reaching new, potentially deadly heights. That April, one of Leo's spies intercepted a letter describing a dastardly plot. A number of cardinals were conspiring to assassinate the Pope. They planned to have Leo's doctor poison the bandages he routinely applied to the Pope's anal fistula. Poisoning was a common method of homicide during the Renaissance, but this particular mode of transmission, using an open wound in the victim's rectum, was a surprising innovation. The leader of the plan was a cardinal named Alfonso Petrucci. He was aggrieved that his brother had been removed as the ruler of Siena and a pro-Medici party replaced him, taking away their family estates in the process. Petrucci convinced several other cardinals, each of whom had his own complaints about Leo, to join him in taking down the corrupt pontiff. Enraged, Leo brought the College of Cardinals before him. In a rare display of passion, he railed at them, demanding to know how each was involved. One by one, the guilty men prostrated themselves, confessing and pleading for leniency. And to an extent, they received it. They would not be executed, and most instead would be heavily fined. But Petrucci was the only cardinal who lost his life. Employing a Muslim executioner, since no Christian would jeopardize his soul by killing a man of the cloth, Leo had his would-be killer discreetly strangled in prison. Perhaps the most extraordinary fact about the whole affair, however, is that there may not have been any conspiracy at all. Apart from Petrucci's motive, the evidence for the plot is scant. And it was more than a little suspicious that Leo seized on the event to shake down the cardinals and compensate for his financial shortfalls. Each of the implicated cardinals was charged around 20,000 ducats for his involvement. Some paid up. Those who couldn't fled the holy city. Either way, Leo used the event to transform the upper echelons of the church to his liking. That June, the 41-year-old pontiff named 31 new cardinals. It was the largest single increase to the college in the history of the church. It was no surprise to anyone that all of the new cardinals were faithful servants of the Medicis. Leo seemed to have regained his grip on Rome, and his power was expanding outside Rome as well. Three months later, in September 1517, the War of Urbino finally ended in victory for the Medici contingent. Short on funds, Francesco della Rovere was forced to retreat, and Leo's nephew Lorenzo seized the city. 
He was then invested once again with the title Duke of Urbino. Giuliano's death after only a few months as Duke of Nemours had been a great disappointment. But now the Medicis were back in the ranks of the nobility. The future looked bright. The only problem was it would have to be paid for. Leo's victory in the War of Urbino had come at an enormous financial cost, upwards of one million ducats, almost twice the papal office's annual revenue. And the Pope's bottomless avarice soon awakened a formidable foe. Coming up, Leo meets his match in a humble German priest named Martin Luther. Now, back to the story. 1517 was shaping up to be a banner year for 41-year-old Pope Leo X and the Medici family. His nephew, Lorenzo, secured his place as Duke of Urbino, assuring the family's long-term prospects. The papacy was at peace with France, a mighty ally on the European political stage. And Leo had even turned an alleged assassination attempt to his advantage, extracting a hefty supply of funds from the conspiring cardinals and stacking their ranks with his own friends. In spite of some lingering health issues, the Pope was relatively young and healthy. At 41 years of age, he could look forward to many years of enjoying his own delights and his family's increasing fortunes. But fate was about to throw a wrench in Leo's efforts, and the challenge to his aspirations would come from the most unexpected of places. The Pope had been selling indulgences for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica since 1515, two years into his reign. But in early 1517, he stepped up the racket. In various parts of Europe, representatives of the church began aggressive sales campaigns for these profitable documents. In Germany, a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel was leading the sales force. He took advantage of the newly available printing press to mass-produce certificates of indulgence, which he hawked with all the subtlety of a carnival barker. Tetzel was so brazen in his sales pitch that any veneer of theological justification for the papers was stripped away. He expressed the smug and cynical spirit of the sales initiative in a simple couplet. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from out the fire springs. But a professor and Augustinian priest named Martin Luther started to notice the effects of Tetzel's endeavors. At his parish in Wittenberg, Luther's congregants began claiming that they no longer needed to repent for their sins. They had bought a pass to salvation from Tetzel. And since the Roman Catholic Church held a monopoly on Christian worship in Europe, the Pope and his emissaries could freely dictate what people were to believe. Dismayed by the effects of the Church's teachings and practices on his parishioners, Luther spent several months in the fall of 1517 writing a list of his objections. While he had many issues with the Church's conduct, his main dispute was with the practice of issuing indulgences. Two of the items on his list referred directly to Tetzel's sales pitch. On October 31, 1517, Luther walked to the center of Wittenberg and nailed a copy of the document to the door of Castle Church. 
He then also sent copies to the Bishop of Brandenburg and Archbishop of Mainz. This action later gained an aura of legend as a thundering gesture against a corrupt establishment. But as E.R. Chamberlain points out in The Bad Popes, Luther was simply following a convention for posting public notices, akin to putting a flyer on a bulletin board today. Though Luther knew his publication would cause a stir and he expected a response from church officials in Germany, he had no intention of going to war with the Vatican. At least, not yet. But Luther failed to realize how much his critique of the church would hit a nerve with the Pope himself. A major part of his argument was that the Pope could only release people from punishments issued by himself, not by God. He argued that remission of sin required heartfelt repentance on the part of the sinner, not just a piece of paper, not even one issued by the Pope. Luther's complaints were a direct affront to the divine authority that generations of popes had claimed. More importantly, if people listened to him, they'd stop buying indulgences, which would cut into Pope Leo X's bottom line. In early 1518, after he'd heard about the trouble brewing in Germany, Leo ordered the head of the Augustinian order to silence the upstart insurgency. That should have been the end of it. The Catholic Church was built around a strict hierarchy. Priests obeyed their superiors, especially when those superiors received their orders from the Pope himself. But Martin Luther was not a typical priest. He approached religion with the attitude of a scholar and carefully studied theology and scripture. This gave him a deep conviction that salvation was a matter between the individual and God. Any man who thought he could interfere with that, even the Pope, was himself committing a mortal sin. And Luther wasn't about to risk his own soul or the souls of his parishioners because some Catholic officials found his message threatening. Without planning to, Martin Luther had exploited Pope Leo X's blind spot. While the pontiff was well-equipped to contend with other Machiavellian power brokers, an earnest campaigner like Luther was something foreign to him. Leo couldn't fathom someone who wasn't as self-serving and rapacious as he was. In the middle of that year, just months after he'd been ordered to keep quiet, Luther sent a letter to the Vatican, explaining the meaning and intention of his 95 theses. Leo didn't bother to reply. Frederick III of Saxony, however, decided someone needed to intervene, and that August he summoned Luther to Augsburg. The southern German city was playing host to an assembly of the Holy Roman Empire, Luther arrived in Augsburg in late September and was thoroughly examined by a local cardinal named Cajetan. Cajetan wanted Luther to publicly retract his statements, but Luther wasn't so easily swayed. He proclaimed that he would only recant if Cajetan could prove his 95 theses were false. Which he couldn't. Throughout 1518, Luther engaged in a series of similar debates about the validity of indulgences, often similarly coming out on top. Still, Leo viewed the whole affair with scorn. His visits to Germany as a young man had left him with the impression that it was a backwards place. 
the other end of the earth from the cultivated climate of Italy. To have a common priest challenge him was outrageous. The fact that Luther was German made it almost laughable. But if the Pope looked at Martin Luther and his country with contempt, the sentiment was mutual. To Luther, Rome was a den of iniquity. He went so far as to write, If there is a hell, Rome is surely built on it. At its root, the rift between Luther and Leo had less to do with their differing interpretations of church doctrine and more to do with the fact that Luther cared about church doctrine. Leo simply didn't. For him, both the theoretical and practical aspects of Roman Catholicism only mattered as instruments of his own will. Martin Luther and all those who engaged with him were exactly the kind of ridiculous pedants who had puzzled Leo as a young student. He was bewildered and annoyed by their hand-wringing over theology and dogma. But although Leo disdained Luther, as time went on, he couldn't ignore him. Almost in spite of himself, the priest was becoming famous for his arguments against the dishonorable practices of the Catholic Church. Luther was a charismatic preacher with a gift both for oratory and for reasoned argument. He was unrelenting in communicating his message to all who would hear it. And he found himself planting his well-phrased ideas in fertile soil. The introduction of the printing press, introduced a few decades prior, had led to an increase in literacy rates across Europe. As more Europeans became educated, they began to question a number of received ideas, including the infallibility of church teachings. Luther promoted this questioning, but also hedged his critiques. He insisted that his dispute was not with the church itself, but with the papacy. He was also shrewd enough to stroke the Pope's pride in his correspondences. He praised Leo's intelligence and virtues in his letters, not wishing to make a personal enemy of the pontiff. At least, no more than he had to. These little acts of diplomacy, however, made little impression on Leo. In November 1518, his office issued a papal bull, an official decree from the church, stating that the Pope indeed has the authority to issue indulgences. Again, Leo thought this would put an end to the matter. Even if Luther kept preaching, lay Christians would be too afraid to listen to him. Questioning the teachings or activities of the Vatican was now tantamount to heresy. But again, Luther defied Leo's expectations. He continued to share his message. Pamphlets explaining his arguments began to spread across Europe, setting the continent ablaze. Centuries of complacence about the Church's stranglehold on Christendom's hearts and minds, not to mention the pocketbooks, began to crumble. The Protestant Reformation was beginning to shake the world. Leo didn't take this lying down. On June 15, 1520, the 44-year-old Pope issued another papal bull titled the Exurge Domine, Arise, O Lord. It condemned 41 statements of Luther's as heretical. That December, Luther appeared in front of a large crowd in Wittenberg. After a few remarks, he held up a copy of Exurge Domine and burned it. 
This was a profound insult to the Pope and to the institution of the Church. It marked a serious escalation in the conflict, and Leo responded swiftly. On January 3, 1521, Leo formally excommunicated Martin Luther. The priest had gone too far. This measure won the Pope praise from world leaders, who saw him as a protector of the traditional order. King Henry VIII of England wrote to Leo, extolling his response to the threat. Leo, in turn, named the British monarch Fide Defensor, Defender of the Faith. But Leo yet again underestimated Luther's resolve and the appeal of his message. To Luther's followers, the priest's expulsion from the church only highlighted the need for radical change. It was clear that the Catholic Church was impervious to reform from within. Which meant it was time for a new kind of Christianity. All this Reformation business was, above all, a giant headache and a persistent distraction for Pope Leo X. Now 45 years old, he had bigger things to worry about than the doctrinal quibbles of some intransigent northern preacher. Work needed to continue on St. Peter's Basilica, and Leo considered issuing indulgences for a proposed crusade against Suleiman the Magnificent of Turkey. Even worse, the business with Luther had dealt a huge blow to the Pope's social calendar. There just wasn't enough time to party when he was constantly drafting papal bulls. So Leo decided it was time to take drastic measures and for a new, very unlikely alliance. Two years earlier, in 1519, Charles V, the Archduke of Austria, had been elected Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope detested the new emperor. He hadn't wanted him crowned. But he needed him now. So in May 1521, the two agreed on an alliance. Charles promised to back Leo's efforts by officially banning Luther's teachings and labeling him a heretic. In exchange, Leo would help expel France from Italy, his former ally, and divide the reclaimed province of Milan between the Holy Roman Empire and the Papal States. The duo hired a massive force of Swiss troops to do the job. Leo added to the military pressure by threatening to excommunicate his former ally, Francis I, if he didn't withdraw. Whether or not he was concerned about the threat of excommunication, Francis eventually retreated, overwhelmed by the opposing army. Leo was overjoyed. After years of going back and forth with the King of France, he wouldn't have to worry about this foreign interloper any longer. In November 1521, papal troops rode triumphantly into Milan. It was a glorious victory, one worthy of a gala to outdo all Leo's previous jamborees. But the Pope would not get to celebrate this triumph. He died of a fever on December 1st, 10 days before his 46th birthday. The cause of Leo's death was initially given as pneumonia, but his doctors later reported that he was poisoned. There's nothing too remarkable about this. Several popes before him had died the same way, and Leo had no shortage of enemies. As he lay on his deathbed, he reportedly muttered, Oh God, oh God, 
either a last-minute appeal to the divinity he had long ignored, or a parting piece of blasphemy from a godless pope. This unceremonious end came too late to undo the Medici rise Leo had tried so hard to orchestrate. During his eight years as pope, he accomplished a great deal for his family. Along with continuing the Medici tradition of artistic patronage, he ushered the family into the next era in which they would be mavens of the High Renaissance. Their unofficial rulership of Florence was elevated to a dukedom in 1532. Two Medici women, Catherine de' Medici and Marie de' Medici, reigned as queens of France. And Leo's cousin Giulio followed in his footsteps to serve as Pope Clement VII, the second of four Medici popes. Still, not even littering the name Medici through history's annals could overwrite the unfortunate end to Leo's personal legacy. In his eight years at the Vatican, he had bled the papal coffers dry with his gratuitous spending. There was nothing left to pay back the bankers who had extended loan after loan to supplement the Pope's income, and it would be up to his successors to balance the books. And then there was the even bigger problem, the one Leo tried so hard to ignore. History has cast the Pope as a supporting player and a villainous one to the revolutionary figure of Martin Luther. Buoyed by his disputes with Leo, Luther became widely published in Germany. His ideas quickly spread around Europe, with Reformation efforts springing up in Denmark, Switzerland, England, France, and elsewhere. Within a couple of decades, Protestantism emerged as a viable alternative to Catholicism. The makeup of the Christian world was forever changed. And Pope Leo X would always be remembered as a buffoon, one whose incessant partying gave rise to the Protestant Reformation and ultimately broke the church asunder. Somehow he managed to outdo all his predecessors and end the dizzying years of the despotic Renaissance popes with a bang. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our new season on tyrannical leaders in post-World War II Central America and the Caribbean. For more information on Pope Leo X, amongst the many sources we used, we found White Robe, Black Robe, Pope Leo X, Martin Luther, and the Birth of the Reformation by Charles L. Mee, Jr., and The Medici by Paul Strathern, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Nora Battelle, Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? 
Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.